Like white soldiers in the Civil War, black soldiers experienced something they would never forget, a moment when, as Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, their hearts were touched with fire. But they fought more than just Confederate enemies. We'll come back and talk about what they faced with Richard Reed, author of Freedom for Themselves, North Carolina's Black Soldiers in the Civil War Era, on Civil War Talk Radio. For the people in our military, it's a time of sacrifice and duty. That's why all four military aid societies have joined together to form the Armed Forces Relief Trust to help military families cope with financial and medical emergencies at home. With so many serving overseas, the need is greater than ever. You can learn more and donate at www.afrtrust.org. A message from the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Once upon a time, there lived three energy hogs. Now, an energy hog is what you have when humans waste energy. One day, the three energy hogs set out to find themselves a cottage. Let's look for leaky windows, said the first energy hog, for he knew that would waste energy. Let's look for leaky doors, said the second. Let's look for a swing set, said the third, for he had more blubber than brains. So they set off down the road. Presently, they came upon a tiny cottage where dwelled a clever girl named Dreadylocks. I hope it has leaky windows, cried the first energy hog. I hope it has leaky doors cried the second. I hope there's the bathroom, cried the third, for only his brains were smaller than his bladder. But Dreadilocks liked playing cool games at energyhog.org, and from energyhog.org she learned how to use energy wisely. So the three energy hogs were forced to look elsewhere to waste energy, and had to use the disgusting restroom at the gas station down the road. And the moral of the story is, to use energy wisely, log on to energyhog.org, or waste not, hog not. This public service message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Richard M. Reed, author of Freedom for Themselves, North Carolina's Black Soldiers in the Civil War Era. The uh, In the first segment, we talked a little bit about the uh, various topics really circling around uh, black participation in the Civil War. But uh, focusing now on what exactly brought, uh, uh, what characterizes the, the black military experience in North Carolina. Um, Richard, one of the things that, that struck me about the way, uh, as I was reading the first couple chapters of the book, was just how similar the black experience was uh, in some aspects to the, the white military experience uh, in terms of joining regiments and training and so forth. Uh, Absolutely. Is, is that fair? Uh, yes. Um, I mean, I think that <clears throat> if you looked at 80 or 85 or 90 percent of the black military experience, it would it would resonate with white soldiers. You know, they had the same bad food. They had the same boring life interspersed with periods of, of uh, uh, fear, panic, exultation. Um, they had the same discipline imposed on them. Um, there were, however, um, the other 15 or 20% that set them apart. 
and it's um, it's trying to find this balance between what was unique to them and what was different. One little example, because I look at, at the soldiers in Reconstruction Service, and you can find in the Reconstruction Service, whether it's in um, Virginia or South Carolina or, or North Carolina, cases of violence between black soldiers and white citizens or black soldiers and blacks and white soldiers. Uh, and that might be a manifestation of the racism that existed and the hostility towards black troops. But if you're looking through newspapers, you can also find cases of violence between white soldiers and white soldiers and white soldiers and white civilians. Um, and, and it's pulling out um, the the different motivations in some of the incidents that you see that, that is intriguing and difficult for a historian. So, in, in, it's too reductionist to say uh, more similarities or more differences. Um, let, let's well, talk about let this. Let me put it this way, uh, okay. if I can. Um, when, I, when we ended the last segment, I was, I was saying what attracted me to um, dealing with a, a number of regiments, because in the book I have, uh, I deal with the four regiments. It seemed to me that the four regiments had within them uh, enough variation that I could explore maybe four or five different issues um, in, in, in some depth. So things like um, the perception of their performance or the question of atrocities or the issue of, of dramatic social transformation that they seem to be symbolizing um, or the condition of the, their families or maybe the last, how as a historian do you make a mundane experience seem important to your readers. So those are the kind of issues that, that dealing with four regiments let me play with. The four regiments did have remarkably different uh, experiences among themselves, which I thought was one of the, the real strengths of this approach. Um, uh, let, let, let's enlighten the, the listeners and, and just go over okay. the, the four of them briefly, if, if you would. Sure. When um, the first attempt to raise troops in North Carolina came out in part of interest in uh, Massachusetts to set you know, the wheels in motion that would allow black soldiers to prove their value. And so at the introduction of this um, topic, you talked about the 54th Massachusetts Glory uh, Regiment. The sister regiment, the 55th Massachusetts, that's raised as the number of volunteers that came out of the North exceeded the numbers that could be used in the 1st Regiment. The 55th Regiment um, was, <clears throat> once it was staffed, sent to North Carolina to be part of what I would suggest was um, an experiment to demonstrate what black soldiers could do led by the proper white officers. So for the regiments that are, the first three regiments that are raised in North Carolina, there was an attempt to use Massachusetts um, white officers. Most were abolitionists in sentiment. Most were reformists, had some military experience, uh, were 
temperance men. And Weiler begins this, uh, to raise this brigade in North Carolina, um, to be a model that will show just how good the black soldier is. Well, events of the war overtake him. Before the regiment can be finished, it's pulled off into different areas. Uh, and, and by the time the third regiment in that proposed brigade is raised, there are too many things going on to let them develop the way that Wild wished to, and it becomes very much like an average black regiment. Um, so you can see in the first three um, a, an experiment initially begun that, that is never allowed to be completed. And in the last regiment I, I deal with, it's a, a heavy artillery regiment, and it's raised primarily uh, for logistic reasons. It, uh, soldiers never fire a shot in anger. They spend their, their time in North Carolina very often as stevedores and laborers. Um, and they are probably typical of how a lot of black regiments were used, um, but it's not very exciting stuff if you're a historian and you have to present this kind of a story unless you can look for different ways to engage the reader. That's true, certainly. They, one of the things I found myself wondering was how would you recruit people to serve in a regiment like that, but you described in some detail the... Uh... And I think... I was thinking of this, that the regiment served a very useful um, service when you're looking, when you're reading about it, because what it does do, I think, is highlight what we often forget about, the degree to which there is black agency through this period, that if you're a young man, young black man in New Bern, as you said, there were a number of possibilities as to what you could do. Um, you could join early on a regiment like the uh, 1st North Carolina or what becomes the 35th uh, USCT, which <clears throat> has an active campaign uh, future ahead of it. Or you could remain as a citizen, a civilian rather, and take advantage of some of the work opportunity in Union-occupied eastern North Carolina, and some do. Or, and the artillery regiment represents the 3rd, you could join a regiment which was not likely to leave the state. Um, you could be close to your family. Uh, you perhaps wouldn't risk the same threats uh, that some of the <clears throat> fighting uh, infantry regiments raised. So it, it helps to remind us that the young black men had a range of choices and that they were making conscious decisions in where they would go and how they would serve. Decisions that were not always respected, mind you. No, and, and indeed they were, were competed. Uh, there was competition for for those recruits after the law was changed to allow uh, uh, draft quotas to be met for northern districts by agents traveling yeah. south and yes. uh, recruiting these people and having them count against the home district so there wouldn't be a draft back, say, in Massachusetts. Um, well, one of the things uh, also very interesting about this subject, and, and Joseph Glathar and others have explored this, is the relationship between the, the white officers of the units and the black enlisted men. Um, were there any black officers in any of these units? Yes, um, but they weren't line officers. <clears throat> um, one of the things that um, Weil tries to do when he first... Um, 
staffs the regiment. And one of the things that made his brigade a little different, he comes in early enough that he gets the authority to select his own officers. He doesn't have to go through um, the Bureau of Colored Troops examination boards. And so in the 1st Regiment, he ensures that there is a black um, uh, chaplain and, more remarkable, that there is a black uh, assistant surgeon, uh, a man called uh, John DeGrasse. Now, John DeGrasse ultimately is forced out. He's uh, court-martialed for uh, <clears throat> drunkenness. But uh, it would seem that that court-martial was as much about the color of his skin as it was about whether he, he drank. Um, there were a few other um, <clears throat> uh, black chaplains that, he, that are in this brigade. But DeGrasse is the only... Um, black surgeon. Now, there are never black officers uh, in these four regiments serving in, as company officers. It's unlike, say, the 55th and 54th Massachusetts. Uh, so I, I gather uh, the issue, well, the issue of having, having black soldiers in positions of authority is something that uh, the white army is not not fully prepared for. What about uh, non-commissioned officers? Yes. Now, again, you can see a pattern change. The the first <clears throat> regiment that that is raised, all of the senior non-commissioned officers, so the the five sergeants and the eight corporals in the company, including the first sergeants, are all black, <clears throat> and. That presented a problem for um, Wilder. Southern black regiments had an additional problem that, that northern black regiments probably didn't. In northern black regiments with free blacks from the north, you're far more likely to find people <clears throat> who were literate. And non-coms did, had a lot of responsibility for the filling out of the forms, um, and so if they weren't literate, put literate, if they weren't willing and able to fill out the form, that put extra onus on the, uh, on the officers. <clears throat> well, the second regiment that's raised has half a dozen white non-commissioned officers brought in to initially act either as senior sergeants or regimental sergeants. <clears throat> so there is a little bit of regression that way. Um, but overwhelmingly, the officers, that the non-commissioned officers in these four regiments are all black. Now, um, when you look carefully at the black non-commissioned officers, a high percentage of them are have in the descriptive books uh, comments such as mulatto, um, light brown. So these are... Um, non-commissioned officers who probably were among the uh, mixed-race free blacks in North Carolina at the time of the war. So the, uh, so you say the pattern changes over time, where, where you initially do have some black soldiers in positions of authority, uh, and that diminishes. The one of the things that keeps that I found reflected in in all the chapters is how the 
the, the intersection of military life and uh, racial attitudes, the, the, the North is, is certainly almost as, as thickly encrusted with racial prejudice as the South uh, at the time of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. But the pressures of military service, well, once you have black soldiers in the military, uh, requ- come into conflict with that. The, uh, uh, there's a constant tension that I, I, I saw in the experience of these regiments between uh, the, the social uh, norms of, of racial interaction and the needs of the military. Um, Yes, and one of the themes that I try to draw out through this this book is that the treatment that the soldiers faced in the army was in in many ways a less unequal treatment than they had experienced um, in their civilian life or experienced from civilian society. Um, Now, probably um, it was a greater difference for the southern soldiers. Um, They had grown up in a system where, uh, to use one example, blacks could not testify in court against whites. Um, And yet, and you can see this in, in, say, the work of Christian uh, Smito, um, under the, the military, blacks do have legal rights, can testify in their court martials, can question white officers. Um, so this is one example of, of the ways in which the army has to be, if it's going to be efficient and, and function as well as it can, it has to be a colorblind institution. Now, having said that, all of the people trying to make it a colorblind institution are people who come into the army, well, the overwhelming number of people who come into the army as civilians with all of the prejudice and social attitudes that Americans have in mid-19th century America. So there's constant tensions uh, going on. The, uh, well, this is a topic worth exploring. I want to pursue it a little further. Uh, before we do that, we'll take another short break, uh, and we'll come back and talk more with Richard Reed, author of Freedom for Themselves, North Carolina's Black Soldiers in the Civil War Era, on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> 